there has been a concerted effort by this court, by these justices, to really show that they are not partisan. Hey, everyone. This is Leon from Fiasco and Prologue Projects. On this premium episode of 5 to 4, Peter, Rhiannon, and Michael are talking about the state of legal media. The Supreme Court is covered by a mix of reporters operating under a variety of perverse incentives and analysts who are often the same people arguing before the court. As a result, rather than checking the power of the judicial branch, the legal media often winds up defending the status quo, or worse, obscuring the court's steady rightward shift. This is 5 to 4, a podcast about how much the Supreme Court sucks. Welcome to 5 to 4, where we dissect and analyze the Supreme Court cases that have ruined our nation's plans for greatness, like tropical storms ruined Michael's plans for a tropical vacation. That's that's right. Womp, womp. He didn't go nowhere. (laughs) Nope. Nope. No. We, like, canceled the week of recording, and we were like, Michael's going to Barbados. Uh, no. No. But now I am going to Bermuda. (laughs) <laughs> so it's a good metaphor for climate change because the extremely wealthy like Michael can simply plan vacations that are out of the path of tropical storms. That's right. <laughs> so the 2020-2021 Supreme Court term has come to an end. And with it have come calls for us to do episodes on the various terrible cases that came down. We've done a couple of them and we will do more this summer and beyond. But it felt more urgent to address a pressing concern, the state of the legal media. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> the legal media has always struggled to convey the realities of the Supreme Court and the law generally to the public. That's due to a combination of things from personal and institutional conflicts of interest to just sort of pure intellectual laziness. Mm-hmm. Obviously, a big part of why we started this podcast is because we saw so few people talking about the court and the law the way that we understand it as a manifestation of political power and ideology. Yeah. Instead, they tend to provide shallow analysis that often borders on being reverential or at least deferential toward the court rather than offering anything incisive or critical. And maybe one of the most severe instances of this phenomenon came at the end of this term when we were subjected to a deluge of articles seemingly praising the court for its ostensible moderation this term, (laughs) which was news to us because, you know, from our perspective, the last court term was about as bad as you'd expect. Mm -hmm. Uh, The court did severe damage to voting rights, prioritized uh, so-called religious liberty over public health and LGBT civil rights, damaged labor rights, and consistently protected the interests of wealthy financiers and corporations. That's right. That's right. So... When we saw article after article claiming that this term was not very conservative and that the justices all displayed unexpected moderation, we thought it would be best to have an episode that answered the question, why? (laughs) Why is this happening? What the what the freaking heck is going on? What is wrong with these people? What the F, guys? What the F? If you follow the Supreme Court, you know that important decisions come down in the month of June. It's the end of the term. So generally, the justices kind of hold on to the most important decisions from the term, release them during the month of June, and then, you know, they go on vacation. So you know that that's coming. But it's also, to me, I think as a result of doing this 
silly podcast week in and week out. It's also become to me the month that this fawning institutional bullshit analysis comes down to. And yeah, it's not only extremely disappointing, I think that it's really kind of a failure of journalism. And it's a failure, too, of of legal professionals to critique the institution to the extent that it should be critiqued. When you look at American history, when you look at the history of the Supreme Court, it's an exception to the rule when the Supreme Court is actually sort of on the side of civil rights, on the side of the small guy, on the side of the people who, who need the law to work for them the most in this country. And it's incredibly disappointing now every year when June rolls around to not only get these batshit opinions from the Supreme Court, from an egregiously conservative Supreme Court, but also to get this analysis in your face telling you it's okay. So there are literally dozens of stories published in the past few weeks, uh, many of them not even waiting for the end of the court term with the thesis that the term was surprisingly moderate. And they all had headlines like America's Supreme Court is less one sided than liberals feared or Supreme Court sidesteps controversy. Uh, Real headlines. Those are real real headlines. (laughs) (laughs) At first, we thought like maybe we'd walk you through these pieces, but there are just like way too many to even begin to try to give you just a sense. There were two such pieces published by Politico, three by The New York Times two by the Wall Street Journal, three by the Wall Street Journal editorial board, two by ABC, pieces at the LA Times, CNN, CBS, Bloomberg, Washington Post, AP, Reuters, the American Bar Association Journal, and the New York (laughs) Review of Books, among others. (laughs) And by the way, thanks to our friend Jay Willis, who's been tweeting about this nonstop and helped us compile this list, uh, which was a Herculean task. Absolutely. So, you know, we wanted to dig into the basic mistakes these pieces make, as well as what they're seeking to accomplish and whether the shared brain parasites these journalists all have were acquired through the human consumption of animals or were actually leaked from a lab. (laughs) Before we do, we want to give you our basic position on this court term. It was very bad. It was bad. (laughs) Yeah, it was bad. It was about in line with what we'd expect from a court this conservative. Yes, there were cases where the outcomes were not as bad as they could have conceivably been. But, you know, not only is it could have technically been worse, not a meaningful metric in my view. Right. uh, But there were also plenty of cases that were worse than they could have conceivably been. So to have the op-ed consensus be like, that was actually fine is not just incorrect, but like borders on real abdication of journalistic responsibilities. Absolutely. I think it kind of makes sense here for us to talk about maybe just some like common patterns or themes within this like, oh, it's all fine uh, bullshit Mm -hmm. that we've noticed. So like, you know, obviously, Peter, you just ran down a list at least of like the numbers and publications. So uh, there are a lot of these pieces floating around, each more offensive than the last. But a specific kind of common thread throughout many of these articles that I found kind of particularly offensive is this idea that somehow Amy Coney Barrett in particular has surprised everyone by actually Mm -hmm. being a moderate. 
So there's this Wall Street Journal piece called Justice Barrett Showed Her Conservative Stripes But Defied Expectations. There's a Reuters piece called Barrett Finds Own Voice at Center of Conservative U.S. Supreme Court. The New York Times headline, The Supreme Court's Newest Justices Produced Some Unexpected Results. That was back kind of mid-late June. And it's like people's brains stopped working right after the Amy Coney Barrett confirmation hearings. Like, we were all there for that, right? Didn't didn't we all see the same thing? Like, do you remember how purposely and professionally obtuse she was? Do you remember how she would not answer a question directly? Do you remember that this woman has publicly and loudly criticized the legal right to abortion for years, including, you know, writing herself that the precedent of Roe versus Wade doesn't need to be respected? She publicly criticized the Obama administration during the creation of the Affordable Care Act. She criticized John Roberts for saving the individual mandate in in the Affordable Care Act in the Sebelius case. And this term, since she's been on the court, she's joined the conservatives in all of the cases just because she didn't write separately to look like a maniac on her own terms in any sort of massive decision does not mean she's some kind of moderate, right? right? Like, right. there are no decisions where on one side it's the three liberal justices on the Supreme Court plus Amy Coney Barrett, right? She is resolutely, firmly conservative. This woman is not moderating any of the opinions that we see coming down. No, no, absolutely not. And, you know, I wanted to talk a little bit about shifting gears a little bit about people who are invested in the Supreme Court in one way or another, writing these reviews. Yes. And so I think the most egregious example was uh, David Cole, who heads up the ACLU, a little organization you might have heard of. And he wrote a piece. Just to make absolutely clear, the ACLU, right, largest maybe legal nonprofit in the country, supposed to be working on behalf of civil rights, you know, working to sort of expand constitutional rights for the common person, right? Right. So the title of his article in the New York Review of Books was Surprising Consensus at the Supreme Court, Hmm. which... Just fuck you, man. (laughs) What was surprising about it, David? (laughs) And and he lists this, like, he has this litany of, like, well, look, when the liberal justices joined each other in dissent, that only happened, what, seven times? And the court was unanimous 43 times and blah, 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 which is a bunch of crap (laughs) because anybody who follows the Supreme Court, as I'm sure David Cole does in his position as a regular practitioner before the Supreme Court. Right, right. Arguing cases in front of these justices. Yeah, and his organization regularly appearing there. I mean, he knows that, for one thing, there's a whole host of fraught cases that go before the court, and those are often unanimous or near unanimous, either 9-0 or 8-1 or 7-2 every year. Like, that's normal, right? right? What matters is what happens in the actual big, important cases that are political hot button issues or shape entire areas of law that are hotly contested, right? Nobody really gives a shit if a patent decision is 9-0. That doesn't matter. Right. But when it comes to the goals of the conservative movement, the Republican Party, 
we are still now seeing, as we have seen regularly for decades, the conservatives and the liberals dividing on uh, usually ideological lines uh, to deliver wins to uh, the Republicans, to the right wing, to the reactionaries of this country. Yes. And that's as true today as it was last year and the year before and for decades. Period. And there's just no debating it. And Cole sort of, he plays sort of fast and loose with the facts because he minimizes the amount the liberals are in dissent. But as we'll talk about later, that totally ignores what's called the Supreme Court's shadow docket. He sort of alludes to things like, oh, the court sided with criminal defendants without really discussing who those defendants were, what the rights in question were. It's very bullshitty, but this is somebody who, if he's not consciously currying favor with the justices with this, at the very least has strong, strong incentives not to piss them off. Right. Right. Absolutely. That's got to be front and center. Right. Like if you are going to publish someone like this, that needs to be clear. I mean, I don't even know why you would publish someone like this, to be honest. Right. But at the very least, like you need something up front so the reader understands that. It's like they serve the role of a boss to some degree. Right. Right. If someone was writing an article on their own boss. <laughs> right. And like, I think they're doing a great job. Wouldn't you be like, hmm, I don't know. It's an extremely small community of lawyers who come before mm -hmm. the Supreme Court and make oral arguments, right? The justices know, right, what writings somebody coming before them, particularly if they're like writing about the Supreme Court at large or like a term wrap up mm -hmm. or like how the Supreme Court is acting and what the justices are doing. The justices know what they have written, right? Because they're human right. beings who live in the world and consume legal media like everybody else does. And it's a yeah. small enough group of justices and lawyers that like that is a way of communicating to one another, right? Yeah. Outside of the courtroom. I, I think that's right. And also I think even if they're trying to be honest, I don't think you're being honest with yourself if you think you can be unbiased while talking about this institution that's so important to you and, and your career right. and your success. Yeah, which literally casts judgment upon you. That's right. Yeah, exactly. Like the idea that you are capable of talking about them in an unbiased way is is sort of ludicrous and like flies in the face of everything we know about human beings, yeah. the way self-interest molds our points of view. My boss is the smartest dude on the planet. Uh, <laughs> that's my my column published two weeks before my performance review. <laughs> <laughs> so another article I want to talk about is by Jenny Sook Gerson called The Supreme Court's Surprising Term, published in The New Yorker. And in this piece, she argues that the court has largely avoided partisanship her words. Where? What the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> yeah. Well, she says that the court didn't even attempt to decide the 2020 presidential election, which is bullshit, I want to say. It's absolutely true that after it was clear that Donald Trump had lost in a way that was just not debatable, right. the court decided to not take up his case for him. But it was also true that they did everything in their power to tilt the balance in favor of Donald Trump in advance of the election, whether it was helping disqualify a million ex-felons in the state of Florida right. from voting in this election or rules that make voting easier, making sure those got struck down. The court was consistently making it harder to vote 
in advance of the election. Really good point. So the idea that, well, after Trump lost, they kept their hands out of it. And that's a sign of like no partisanship is bullshit. It's bullshit. I'm sorry. It just pisses me off so much. And so she's not a practitioner before the court, but she is a Harvard law professor. And the thing about these elite institutions is that they get a lot of their prestige and their legitimacy from their ability to turn out future clerks of the Supreme Court and future justices of the Supreme Court. This is what attracts rich and talented students to them is their ability to get these sort of prestigious positions. Not to mention that they often have their prestigious positions at their elite institutions because of their work clerking on the Supreme Court, right, to begin with, right after law school. That's right. I mean, this is true throughout legal education, but especially true at the elite institutions is that they don't have big practice backgrounds, Mm -hmm. but their, their big values and their ability to do academic shit, like parse the Supreme Court very finely and translate incoherent nonsense into some sort of coherent framework. Right. And as an individual professor, your ability to place clerks increases your status, maybe helps you get tenure and all that. And so this person is very invested in the Supreme Court. It's legitimacy. It's being popularly understood as a fair institution. That is in her interest. The fact that these people get to peddle this, what is propaganda, right? That is like self-serving propaganda yes. and get passed off as experts, right? Yeah. It pisses me off. One thing I want to point out here is that if you're an academic and your job is to parse the Supreme Court, it's very important that you frame it as like at least relatively fair and analytical, right? Otherwise, why would you need an expert? You don't need an like a Harvard professor to analyze Marjorie Taylor Greene, right? Mm-hmm. Everyone knows she's just fucking disease in the brain. If you want to know who won a football game, you don't need right. a fucking former head coach to get into the nitty gritty details. Right. You just need to look at the, the box score and see yeah. who had more points, right? Yeah. And, and if that's all the yeah. court is. Right, exactly. So, Michael, to build on your points about those pieces, uh, because I think they're very emblematic, you know, a a lot of the articles we've seen include these misguided attempts to quantify the politics of the court. Right. They'll argue, among other things, that the judges aligned along strict ideological lines in only seven cases this term, that cases were unanimous nearly half the time, like Michael mentioned pointing out that several cases involved odd mixes of justices across ideological lines. We've mentioned before that you should be very skeptical of this sort of analysis because it's completely divorced from the context. These facts mean very little on their own because they're leaving out these key components of what brought those cases to that point. It's true that there are many unanimous opinions, for example, but, you know, like Michael mentioned, that's because there's tons of unanimous or near unanimous opinions all the time. The 2000 Supreme Court term was nearly half unanimous opinions. <laughs> right. But one of the non-unanimous ones decided the presidency. Right. <laughs> I mean, you know, you, you have to contextualize this shit. You know, Michael highlighted David Cole's piece that he pointed out that the court sided with criminal defendants more than they had in the past. And yeah, one of those criminal defendants was the Nestle Corporation. <laughs> I mean, it's, <laughs> you, you have to like actually take just a tiny step back and get this shit into frame if you're going to publish it for the world to read. All of these analyses have like the same basic flaw in common. 
they're measuring the court's outputs, right? Like who wins and which justice joins which side without weighing the inputs, which is like the nature of the cases themselves. That's just lazy, contrived analysis. Yeah, that's right. And it looks even worse when you consider the shadow docket, which as a reminder for our lay listeners, the shadow docket are the cases that come up to the court on sort of atypical appeal and are often decided without any decision at all or a very short, like couple paragraph long per curium decision, which means nobody signs it. So an example of this might be like, an emergency petition to stay in execution, right? The court will almost inevitably deny that and allow the execution to go forward. And that is a shadow docket decision. Right. There won't be any written opinions by the justices that explain the decision. It'll just be the decision. Yeah. Even more pertinently, this term, a lot of voting cases are shadow docket cases because they come up arising out of sort of an emergency. Uh, and a lot of the COVID cases were as well. That's right. right. Those were two very big issues on the shadow docket this term. And so the liberals were in dissent together. The three of them joined a dissent on shadow docket cases, which you only know that when they note it. You oftentimes don't even know. So at right. least 21 times together, which is a lot more, sounds like a lot more than the way it was, you know, phrased in these fawning profiles, puff pieces of the Supreme Court. And the thing is, sometimes they weren't even alone, right? Like one of the conservatives would join them. Roberts often on COVID-19 stuff was in the camp of like, let's let the governors do their thing. And he ended up being in dissent with the liberals on that. I think that goes to another point, which is those decisions are all the more conservative, right? And that, that goes to show how much more conservative the court is that we're getting five, four decisions right. with a conservative joining the liberals, right? Any time in the last 20 years, that would have been going the other way. But we are at like the most conservative point in the court's modern history. Right. And that's borne out when you do any sort of real analysis of what happened this term. Yeah. Right. And none of these pieces that we're talking about that are pointing out the supposed surprise of a more moderate court this term, none of those pieces are doing, you know, sort of shadow docket analysis, right? Looking at where decisions without explained opinions, without really long writings by the justices are coming down sort of extremely conservatively on a lot of issues. Right. So I do want to point out some of the other analytical fallacies you see pop up consistently in these articles. Most of them revolve around framing things as moderation that are not in reality signs of moderation. So like we noted, they consistently claim that the frequency of unanimous or near unanimous opinions indicate a more moderate court. And we've talked about why that's incorrect. And to be a little more bit more specific, you know, Fulton v. Philadelphia was unanimous because the liberals sided with Roberts to avoid a more disastrous ruling, but it was still very conservative. The Nestle case, which I referenced and will cover at some point in the coming weeks, was gross corporatist shit that went 8-1. But it was, in my view, a fairly conservative decision. Absolutely. Yeah. Another very common trend is the framing of the court's rejection of fringe claims as moderation. Very notably, A case looking to strike down Obamacare came down the pike this year. The basis for the case was absolute nonsense to the point where we're on record saying we thought a 9-0 outcome was very much in the cards, right? Instead, we got a 7-2 win on standing grounds. 
Now, many journalists held this up as a huge win and like a sign of a reasonable court. In reality, that the case had even made it that far was a testament to a judicial ecosystem that fosters and elevates fringe right-wing bullshit. I don't think that there were many reasonable scholars that thought that the ACA would get struck down by that case. So the fact that it came relatively close is disconcerting. It's not good. It's not it doesn't mean that the court is moderate. Yeah, that's right. And the legal media has really failed to point that out at all. Right. You know, the fact that the ACA case was even in front of the Supreme Court is ridiculous. And so just because, you know, the court sort of moderated itself in um, denying those arguments, right, in not agreeing with the far right arguments, it doesn't mean that the court is handing down liberal wins. That's right. The legal media should be pointing that out. Peter, you made the point in the Cedar Point Nursery episode when we were criticizing Breyer's ineffective dissent, right? This is a liberal justice in dissent in an extremely conservative opinion. And in dissent, all Breyer is saying is there's no precedent for this. Why is the court deciding this way? There's no precedent. Instead of making substantive legal arguments that in the future lawyers can scaffold off of the same way that conservative dissenters, Alito, Gorsuch, when they're writing their dozens of pages in dissent or in concurrence, the same way they do, right? They are giving lawyers in the future arguments to bring to the Supreme Court, arguments to make in front of the Supreme Court. And liberals just aren't doing that. And the legal media does not talk about that. The way the media covers these cases ends up sort of obscuring this dynamic where even like liberal wins are like the foundation for future conservative wins, whereas liberal losses are often don't lay the foundation for anything. Right. Because the liberal justices suck. Right. Conservatives do that sometimes. And this is a dynamic like the legal media just totally misses. Yeah. Yeah. So the the last theme that I really consistently saw pop up in these articles is the idea of incrementalism as moderation. Now, the court in various cases took smaller steps to the right than it theoretically could have. <laughs> so if you are an idiot, yeah. you might chalk those up as wins <laughs> for the left, right? It could have been worse. Now, if you are not an idiot and perhaps even are a bit of a student of the law and of this court, you might realize that incrementalism is common in Supreme Court jurisprudence and court jurisprudence generally. And with the Roberts Court in particular, it is often simply the first step in a series of steps further to the right. Yeah. So that should not be confused with moderation, right? If you want to know whether the court is genuinely moderate, some key questions would be like, Were there any major liberal victories this term? How many? (laughs) Right. Now go ahead and compare those with conservative outcomes and see if it balances out. To me, those seem like, you know, pretty obvious questions and their answers seem pretty equally obvious. So it's a bit unnerving to see a small army of journalists just ignore those questions entirely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of the pieces that these journalists are writing are like pieces that I like to call like, well, actually pieces, Mm. which, like we've been saying, is this weird tendency to be like, well, actually, the court isn't as bad as you think. Well, actually, the institution isn't as rotten as you think, whatever, whatever. But one particular brand of the well, actually theme is, well, actually, the court isn't as 
6-3 court with six conservative justices on one side and three liberal justices on the other, this is actually more like a 3-3-3 court. And so the grouping you see these numbskulls identifying is the three liberals, of course, Justices Kagan, Sotomayor, and Breyer, the three kind of ultra-conservative or strong conservatives, that's Alito, Thomas, and Gorsuch, and then there are three perfect baby angels in the middle who are going to save the republic, (laughs) right? Roberts, Amy Coney Barrett, and Kavanaugh. And, you know, I could maybe get on board with this if, like Peter, you were saying, if the evidence really showed that that was the case, that there were three kind of moderate justices in the middle who kind of went back and forth. But that's not what is happening. The conservatives are not fractured if the outcomes are by and large extremely conservative. If one or two of the conservative justices write a concurrence, so they're writing separately from the majority, to explain their own freakazoid reasoning that would still reach the same conclusion, I'm sorry, but that isn't moderation, you know? Our criticisms on this podcast of John Roberts are long documented. He is a wolf in the worst sheep's costume. Amy Coney Barrett is deeply conservative. I already talked about that. Brett Kavanaugh is a GOP robot. He's a conservative afterthought. He is a screen on which conservative political goals are projected and reflected back. He does as he's told, and that's why he's on the court. As a partisan rather than an ideologue, right? right? He's a Republican. He's not a conservative. Right. These three people are not moderating anything, and they're not flipping back and forth between ostensibly liberal opinions, liberal questions, and conservative ones. They are deeply entrenched in supporting conservative political goals, and they are doing that on the Supreme Court. Right. Yeah. The 333 framework is like classic misleading framing. It's not totally untrue that there is a a sort of fracture between the, you know, what you might call the moderate conservatives for the absence of a better term. Right. And the far right conservatives. Sure. Of course, there's a fracture. But the idea of like three, three, three makes it seem like there are these distinct groups. No, the division between the moderate conservatives and the liberals is massive. Yeah, that's right. right. It's this massive space there. And the division between the conservatives and the fringe conservatives is relatively small and technical. And you shouldn't be conflating those divisions by saying it's three, three, three right there. Like, you know, this is something, Michael, that you were pointing out last year when we were talking about a more conservative court, that you're going to start to see the differences between the nuances in the conservative theories. Not that they are particularly far apart, but that as the court moves right, you will see a little more nuance than you would have previously. Yeah, that's right. But it's not true that when the conservative justices broke, they broke in these sort of same three blocks, right? Like oftentimes they were different justices in like the fringe group versus the moderate group, right? Like sometimes Gorsuch is in the moderate group and Amy Coney Barrett is more fringe or whatever. Yeah. Remember when Gorsuch came down with the libs on Bostock and people were saying that he was the most moderate of the conservative justice? What happened to that? That just disappeared. Yeah, exactly. Right. One thing that explains the 333 genre of analysis that you've seen is a phenomenon I first like encountered when I was working on the Obama campaign in 2008, which is that boredom is often a driver of coverage Hmm. in political media. And make no mistake, the Supreme Court coverage is political media. My first experience with that was when 
during the primaries, like the candidates go around and they deliver their stump speech and it's the same speech every time. And maybe there's some like a few nuanced differences, but most places, most people, they have never heard it, right? Like if you live in Indiana and you're voting in May, you're not paying attention to stump speeches in February and March, Right. And even if you are paying attention, you're not sitting down on C-SPAN or wherever the fuck you'd find a 45 minute hour long televised stump speech. But candidate gives same stump speech to the same rapturous applause they always get isn't a fun story and it's boring for the people who are covering it. And so instead they write these stories about how the campaign is stagnating, how they're out of new ideas Mm. and they frame it in their own worldview of being bored at hearing the same shit as if people are bored of hearing the same shit. For most people, they've only heard it once if that, but to the reporters who have to follow them around. That was the coverage you'd see. And then when there'd be minute changes, it'd be like, oh, they must have gotten bad poll numbers or whatever. Mm-hmm. That was the way the coverage was shaped, not only by their personal opinions, but also by that's what sells, right? Like, right. that's also a boring story. Same old, same old. And, and I think that's the case here too, right? Legal media, it's a boring story that they themselves are bored with. Hey, the justices are ideological partisans and the conservatives deliver wins, right? That's not a story that's like particularly interesting to the people writing it, nor is it a story that's going to be grabbing headlines or getting people to read it, right? Right. So there's this dysfunction both that's like a product of like having to sell news, right? News that sells and also of news being covered by uh, sort of apathetic weirdos who are totally insulated from the consequences of this stuff. And so Mm -hmm. it is all just sort of like a sporting event that they can cover and and they think their job is to keep you tuned in, right? Right. Yeah, that's such a good point, Michael, because it's like this kind of need or or instinct to be just a little bit contrarian, right? Right. It's not what you thought. Well, actually, the Supreme Court is okay. Everything is fine. What we do year in and year out covering this court is justified because, look, it's not so bad for everybody. But I think that's such an interesting, boring and weak choice for Mm -hmm. your contrarianism when as journalists and as analysts, it's a complete abdication of your critical role. What this reveals is a media that is more concerned with sounding interesting than of reporting accurately. Yeah. Right. right? And I think that's very common, but it's like just so obvious here. And it's something that should piss you off as a consumer that like the people whose job is to tell you what's going on are like consciously not doing that, like making a choice to not do that. Yep. There's not a lot of clicks in telling obvious truths. Right. Right. And so you have like with the Merrick Garland debacle, with Kavanaugh, the rush appointment of Amy Coney Barrett, it's like a pretty widely held belief that this court is conservative and and that the court is political, right? And it's not super interesting to an editor to like reiterate that. Right. And so what you get is this sort of like ascendance of the counter narrative, even if it's not substantively very sensible. It's, it's just a microcosm of the trends that have like really and truly killed off huge chunks of reliable journalism over the course of the past decade or so. And I also do think like, This sort of reminds me of a trend I've seen elsewhere, which I'll call like the reassurance industry, like people like Steven Pinker and Malcolm Gladwell, among others, have in recent years been making the case that like this moment in time, 
it's actually the best time to be alive in human history. <laughs> and they point to like technology and crime rates and things like that. And of course, like they largely ignore or downplay things like climate change and inequality. Right. What they're really doing is like in a time of increasing political polarization and concern over the long term direction of our planet and our body politic, making the case for the status quo. Right. That's right. right. Look, like you don't need to worry. Everything is fine. And I see a lot of that in these pieces about the Supreme Court. Right. The natural human tendency here is to see the court and think, well, shit, this sucks. Yeah. Right. We're in a crisis of democracy, a crisis in our climate, a crisis in our levels of inequality. And the court is facilitating all of those crises fairly actively in some cases. It's not good. Yeah. And so out come the status quo defenders to try and pet you on the head and say, look, this is actually OK. Things aren't that bad. You don't need to worry. It's inevitably the product of the privileged classes that are quite comfortable with the status quo. And it's quintessentially reactionary in that sense, right. right? It's designed to breed complacency and foster opposition to reform. That's right. And I think that is particularly true right now because reform is in the air, right? Like reform was a big topic yeah. of conversation political discussion in the months leading up to the election, so much so that Biden pledged to put together this sort of do-nothing commission, which he has. But, you know, the commission, for all the, uh, I think, rightful cynicism about it being a place where, you know, an idea goes to die and they, they aren't even supposed to give recommendations and, and all that, at the same time, it also represents an opportunity with the Supreme Court does something extremely unpopular to put like a sort of, uh, you know, bipartisan or nonpartisan gloss on court reform. There is a backstop there. And I think powerful actors understand that there's a constituency for this now, mm -hmm. right? That there are interest groups that want to see this happen, that some people understand that the war for the courts is essentially lost. Right. Like the conservatives won. They control the federal judiciary pretty much top to bottom. Um, there are a few geographical areas where that's not quite true, thanks to like the balance of the appellate courts. But writ large, that's the case. Mm -hmm. So some people want to fight back. And there's opposition to that because the courts are delivering consistent wins to powerful interests, to chambers of commerce and big banks and religious groups that are important to the Republican base. And, you know, they're getting what they want out of the courts. And, and so, yeah, reform is in the air and people understand that. And, and so there's now more than ever, a need for this reassurance industry, you know? And, you know, I keep thinking about our kind of long-term thesis on the podcast that the Supreme Court justices, judges in general, they're not making decisions objectively. They don't look at just the facts of the case as they are presented to them and then use the objective legal rules that our society has developed and apply them to the case and they come out with an objective answer. We've said that forever, right? But when you look at article after article that is just fawning the Supreme Court for moderating itself, for policing itself, 
right? And saying everything is okay, everything is okay, actually, after a term that was deeply conservative with the most kind of right wing and fringe issues that we've seen in decades coming before it. You just have to recognize how much that obfuscation, that idea in the public at large that the Supreme Court is a good institution that decides things objectively, you know, all of that stuff. You have to recognize how much the media has done that to our society. So not just that law schools teach cases this way, but also that when there is such a huge opportunity to educate the public about what is really happening at the Supreme Court, that legal journalists are lazy and empty headed and saying, you know, everything is fine. This is how it's always happened. This is how it will always happen. And that's good. Yeah, that's right. You know, we've talked a lot about the problem here. And maybe we should talk solutions because we're a solutions-oriented podcast. (laughs) And uh, I have the obvious solution, which is that our podcast should be mandated in law schools. Yes. Not just law schools. I think every senator. No, not just law schools. It should be, you know, those cards that open up, you hear a voice say happy birthday. There's like a little chip. Mm -hmm. When you open a newspaper, our entire podcast should play. Yeah. Uh-huh. I think it should be more like, you know, the uh, scene in Clockwork Orange where people are strapped to a chair <laughs> and their eyes held open while they watch, while they listen to our podcast. Um, I guess you don't have to hold their eyes open to, to make them listen to our podcast. Yeah. No, I mean, like the solutions to this are it's one of those things where the solutions are so like simple and obvious that I don't even really know what else to say about it. Like. Yeah, you should have editorial standards. So <laughs> right. Like, right. You shouldn't publish David Cole right. at the ACLU, who has a vested interest in making all of the justices feel uh, warm and fuzzy. Shouldn't publish him talking about how they're actually doing a great job. Right. Yeah, and a recognition that it's a blurry line between reporting and opinion here, right, and analysis. All those things sort of mm-hmm. blur together when it comes to covering the court. Right. So obviously our biggest gripe with legal journalism is that it too frequently treats law, politics, and ideology as if they are separable things, right? You see that throughout these pieces, which are often sort of breathing a sigh of relief that the court was not political or was less political than feared. And that just misunderstands what the court is and what law is. Law is a set of rules for establishing and maintaining a certain social, political, and economic order, right? You can't just subtract politics or ideology from that, right? They're built in. Exactly. There's no analysis of the Constitution or of legislation that does not have ideological preferences regarding how the Constitution or legislation should be analyzed baked into it. Yes. Right? It's inherent. And legal media should be savvy enough to grasp that. And if that's a little too abstract, and if I had to prescribe a solution that's a little more specific and realistic, I would say that editors and legal journalists should be careful when trying to derive a single simplistic narrative from something as complex as a Supreme Court term, right? Mm -hmm. You don't see this in other areas, in comparable areas. News organizations don't cover Congress like this, right? Where just like at the end of the year, there's a page and a half of recap in the Washington Post. Right, right. And it makes like even less sense in the case of the Supreme Court, which handles dozens and dozens of discrete cases touching a wide array of issues. A lot of people's consumption of Supreme Court coverage is super limited and will be disproportionately colored by these end of term pieces. So the media should be careful not to fall back on these sorts of lazy attempts 
to summarize 100 plus cases with a single oversimplified narrative. That's right. Yes. And if I can add, you know, one more thing, I don't think that all media needs to necessarily be hostile towards power, but it should be skeptical toward power, mm-hmm. right? And you just don't see that here. There should be an inherent mistrust of institutions as powerful as the Supreme Court. And I think if you started from that perspective, you would end up in a much more reasonable place. That's right. And I will say, uh, you know, liberals could use some better billionaires. Yes. (laughs) I do believe that to be the case. Conservative billionaires, they like run the Wall Street Journal and Fox News and Sinclair News, and they fully understand those things to be propaganda organs for their ideological movement. And Mm -hmm. Liberal billionaires like what have moveon.org. <laughs> Steyer running himself for president in like the stupidest. I mean, God, it's so disappointing. It's so disappointing that yeah. are the class of billionaires on the left, the ostensible left. Right. You know, I will say this isn't like directly media focused, but I think it sort of ties to it. I was reading an article in The Atlantic called How Democrats Lost the Courts. And, you know, he said the possible explanations are many. Maybe Democratic voters don't care as much about courts as Republicans do, which I do not think is true. I think that's like some received wisdom in Washington that they hear from their donors. But when your base is 65 to 70 percent women who've seen their reproductive freedom eroded for decades, I think you are fooling yourself if you think your voters don't care about the Supreme Court. And I think to the extent that it is true, it's because the Republican Party has made it an issue. Right. They have centralized it to a degree that the Democrats simply have. Right. They've organized around it. Right. They've said, you know, you're pro-life. Here's our sort of flashpoint right. in the court. Right. 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 And the Democrats just haven't done that. Right. But they also said donors on the left didn't invest in the courts the same way as those on the right have. And I think that gets to part of it, which mm-hmm. is that like the money on the left in general, not just the billionaires, but money on the left I think, doesn't care as much about the court. And I think that's because there's degrees to which the court serves their interests, right? Like, I mean, if you are a fucking rich white dude, you've been fine, right? Like the court has not really been touching you and your businesses still get to do whatever you want to do. And you can have a, you know, a progressive business if you want and invest in green energies and divest from you know, oil or whatever, if that's what you want to do with your massive amounts of capital. Make a lot of money on weed. Yeah, but you're not getting hurt by this stuff. So maybe you don't care. And I think that permeates the media as well, right? Like, I think that's just the fact that left-leaning organs or centrist media organs have money behind them and their moneyed interests are happy with the status quo, Yeah, right? And and that's something we have to just accept is, is true. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the last thing I want to mention about this, and it's something that we've referenced before, the right wing right now is publishing pieces about how the Supreme Court is in the control of liberals. Yep. And Amy Coney Barrett's yep. a disappointment and Brett Kavanaugh's a disappointment and John Roberts is a disappointment. Mm-hmm. They are not stopping because they have won. Right. They're saying we could win more. Right. Meanwhile, the liberal media is pushing complacency, is suggesting that we're actually losing the perfect amount. Uh, every <laughs> <Right>. time. <laughs> losing rules, actually. And you should leave Justice Breyer alone and let him right. retire yes. on his own time. Right. We're a glass one-tenth full kind of people. 
yeah. there's a hole in the bottom of the glass, but it's just dribbling out. It's not <laughs> pouring out. So that's right. I mean, the different approach is what drives the right wing victories on this front, right? Because they are never satisfied with what they have. They're constantly pushing. And the hegemonic neoliberal media apparatus wants you to be more or less okay with yeah. at, with the way things are. And that's always going to result in losses for the left. So, you know, to wrap this episode up, if you're a journalist covering the Supreme Court for like fucking Bloomberg or whatever, and you're sitting around scratching your empty little head, wondering how three idiots without any particular expertise have a popular podcast talking shit about the Supreme Court while you're getting 35 clicks per article, <laughs> you have no one to blame but yourself. That's right, dipshit. If your coverage of the court was remotely competent, if it was remotely inquisitive, if it contextualized the modern court within its place in history, there wouldn't be a need for us at all, right? Our success is your own failure being reflected back at you. Yep. You became a journalist to be a guiding light to your readers, and you have been content to live in the darkness. Tell them. And we at 5-4 ask only one thing of you. Repent. <laughs> Repent or you will never gaze upon the kingdom of God. That's right. <laughs> Next week. Uh... <laughs> Ronovich v. DNC case from just a few weeks back where the Supreme Court, in a very moderate fashion, dismantled <laughs> Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. Yeah, that's right. Surprising turn. They did it so sweetly. Yeah. Thanks for... Uh being our patrons. The more patrons we get, the closer we are to being the billionaire saviors the left has always looked for. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Keep giving money and we're going to buy a newspaper. <laughs> that's right. That's your direct action. Follow us on Twitter at 5-4-Pod and we will see you next week. 5-4 to Four is presented by Prologue Projects. This episode was produced by Rachel Ward with editorial support from Leon Nafok and Andrew Parsons. Our production manager is Persia Verlin. Our artwork is by Teddy Blanks at Chips NY, and our theme song is by Spatial Relations. <laughs>